The prologue is titled Approaching Curious Jaw, and it's from a recent study by Nomi Stolzenberg and David Myers. They begin. Orange County, New York, is a suburban idol, rolling hills, spacious lots, good schools, and a robust civic spirit. In keeping with the spirit of the modern American suburb, it even has its own high-end outlet mall, Woodbury Common, and with more than 200 stores selling the latest designer fashions. Built to look like an American colonial village, with shingled roofs, a tower shaped like a steeple, and a market hall overlooking an ersatz village square, the Common has become a major tourist site since its opening in 1985, attracting millions of visitors every year in search of the archetypal American shopping experience. Less than four miles away is another notable site in Orange County, also created to resemble a village of yore, Curious Joel, often referred to as KJ. The village is a legally recognized municipality whose population of 25,000 consists almost entirely of Hasidic Jews from the Satmar dynasty. Like Woodbury Common, it has been deliberately designed to evoke a traditional past, but the cultural heritage to which K.J. lays claim is very different from the one evoked by Woodbury Common. The Common, as its name reflects, is an exercise in nostalgia for a colonial American past. Curious Joel, by contrast, expresses nostalgia for a Jewish past. More specifically, it yearns for the past of European Jewry embodied in the shtetl. Though the pasts to which they seek to return could not be more different, the two villages exemplify, each in its own way, what Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger famously called in their 1983 book the invention of tradition. Those writers contended many traditions that appear or claim to be old are often quite recent in origin and sometimes invented. This is an apt description of the various incarnations of the shtetl that occupy the American mental and physical landscape. The historical shtetl that existed in Europe, as opposed to the mythologized version that entered into the American cultural imagination through Fiddler on the Roof in the 1950s and 1960s, was far more diverse than the myth would have it. But it is the mythic one might say, American version, more than the culturally diverse historical shtetl that Curious Joel aspires to replicate. And while the mythic shtetl came to life in the imagination of novelists and storytellers, the shtetl that is Curious Joel took rise on the soil of the United States. The village was formed to enable its residents to live a stringently observant religious life in which all matters, both public and private, are subject to the spiritual guidance and authority of a single religious leader, the Grand Rabbi or Rebbe. The village features a rich network of institutions that cater to the distinctive Satmar way of life, which is consciously patterned on the shtetl of Europe before World War II. The male inhabitants of Kiryasjol dress in black frock coats, while the females wear modified versions of Jewish women's traditionally modest garb. Their ritual customs, religious piety, and deep reverence for the past all conjure up the well-known theme song of Fiddler. Tradition! 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 
but whereas the lead character in Fiddler, Tevia, famously wrestles with the competing poles of tradition and the secular world, the residents of Kyrgios Joel are far less conflicted and far more successful at preserving their traditional way of life. They belong to the strictly observant sector of Jews known as Haradim, whose name comes from the Hebrew word for those who tremble, as in the biblical verse, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Haradim trembled at what they saw as the contaminating effects of modern secular culture on their time-honored religious beliefs and practices. In fact, they rejected not only the secularizing trends affecting Jewish life from the latter half of the 18th century, but also the existing forms of Orthodox Judaism, which they regarded as insufficiently separated from the spiritually polluted secular world. Ironically, their zeal to preserve Jewish tradition led them to invent a new form of Judaism. We might, for a moment then, substitute the word invention for tradition, because as we're learning in the story we're about to hear, if we take Tevya as a symbol, he will not be left on the rooftop teetering between seeming opposites. He will actually be playing a new melody, counterpoint perhaps, developing a way of living that draws on past practices to encounter head-on contradictory forces and using them in a way that develops something new. Invention! And Professor Stolzenberg and Dr. Myers tell an intriguing story that in the end will reveal to us something about America today, how we got this way. And also, as important, they raise questions about the future. Nomi Stolzenberg holds the Nathan and Lily Chappelle Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Law School. And David Myers holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles. The two have co-authored an important study titled American Shtetl, The Making of Kyrgios Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, issued in February by Princeton University Press. Dr. Myers is a native of Scranton, and he and Professor Stolzenberg, the two are married, returned to Scranton in March to present a program titled A Remarkable Tale of Law, Politics, and Religion as part of the World Affairs Luncheon Seminars hosted by the Schemmel Forum at the University of Scranton, after the last question and final answer at the seminar, Professor Stolzenberg and Dr. Myers paid a visit to the WVIA studios to share with us the story of Kyrgios Joel. It is too tempting not to ask them about their fundamental curiosity about Kyrgios Joel, K-I-R-Y-A-S. In 1994, which was quite a while ago, I was in my early 30s, I'd just been tenured, just had my second of three daughters, and I'm a law professor, and I had an interest in law and religion, and really in what happens to subgroups in particular, but not only religious subgroups, that are resistant to the values of a modern liberal secular society. And I'd already written about some very interesting lawsuits from the 80s filed by evangelical Christians claiming that 
public schools were indoctrinating their children in secular humanism in violation of their right to freedom of religion. And then in 1994, the Supreme Court handed down this really interesting case involving a community that I don't think I knew anything about at the time called the Village of Curious Joel, which was founded and populated exclusively by Sotmers. David can explain at more length what Sotmers are, but that's the name of one particular group of Hasidic Jews, you know, very, very traditional Jews. And the case that went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court in 1994 addressed the constitutionality of a law that had been passed by the New York State Legislature, allowing this community that had already formed its own village to have its own public school district. And the question was, was that constitutional or was it a violation of the Establishment Clause that embodies the principle of separation between church and state? I was just, I was immersed in my work as a legal scholar. David is a Jewish historian. And I would look over my shoulder at the dinner table and see what Nomi was working on because we not only are two scholars who wrote a book together, we happen to be married. And I looked across at what she was working on and was absolutely fascinating. She was working on a variety of forms of strong religious subcommunity that had found their place on the landscape of the United States. And one of them was a group of traditionally observant Jews who, as a Jewish historian, interested me greatly because this community that had not only succeeded in creating its own spiritual enclave in Orange County, New York, about an hour outside of New York City, but they had actually gained recognition as a legally recognized municipality. So they were not only, as we say, a shtetl, referring to a group of Jews living together in close quarters, sharing a similar cultural and religious life, they were an actual political body possessed of what we call local sovereignty. And this strike me as just too darn fascinating to pass up because really such a community is pretty much without precedent in the history of Jews in the modern age. Outside of the state of Israel, which has its own obvious substantial degree of sovereignty, but this form of sovereignty in the diaspora was very, very unique and I think really unprecedented. So that was the first thing that interested me. The other was really deviating somewhat from my usual pursuits as an intellectual historian who studies often very abstruse texts written by decidedly dead people. This was a community of very living, alive people. And it required me to uh, develop a, a new skill set, to develop some of the tools of an ethnographer, to uh, understand a living community by spending time there and talking to people and observing. And that was just such a fascinating turn in my career. So that's what really drew me to this project that evolved really out of Nomi's own research agenda. And Nomi, the information that you were gathering about the Supreme Court case, it turns out that that way of negotiating its relationship with its place in New York and its place in the world was very much in keeping with who that community was and is. Absolutely, which is to say that this is a community, this is one of many paradoxes of the community, that on the one hand is very, very insular. It's a separatist community. Its deep-seated belief is that in order to be spiritually pure, which is the greatest objective, 
one must withdraw from the world, withdraw from worldly affairs. But on the other hand, even going back to the community's origins in the shtetls of Europe, they realized that in order to do that, it was necessary for there to be some negotiations with the political authorities in the outside world so that they would be permitted to do that. Now, most members of the community stay inside the community, but there have always been sort of designated leaders, a, a sort of secular leadership, if you will, in addition to the religious leaders of the community, whose job is precisely to negotiate with what they would call the Gentile authorities. And so in this particular situation, having created their own village and having created their own public school district, and we can talk about how they had done that, the constitutionality of those actions was now being challenged. Someone, very interesting man by the name of Lewis Grummet, had gone to court and said, basically, it's unconstitutional for a religious community to have its own separate school district. So now what the community had to do, it had to hire lawyers and work with them to craft a legal strategy to defend the constitutionality of their municipal institutions. And that required really translating their religious values and beliefs into the idiom of American constitutional law. At the same time, David, we're learning that as you take us through from those days in Hungary and the wonderful picture of the meeting of Rabbi Teitelbaum with the Romanian king, King, that that is built into who they are as a people. And there's a combative nature, isn't that the word you use, that has helped them get to the place on the hill, a phrase you use so wonderfully. It's does seem like paradox, the irony, the dissonance in who they are and what they've done to stay who they are. Absolutely, Erica. You know, there are really at least three seemingly competing impulses that help create the world of Satmar Hasidim. One is the impulse toward separatism, toward creating an enclave at a remove or an existence at a remove from the rest of society, which is the source of contamination. The modern world and modern society are sources of contamination that threaten to unravel the inner core of the Satmar Hasidic way. That's a deeply held belief. The second impulse is is the combative impulse that is characteristic of the Teitelbaum family, extending back to the early 19th century in Hungary. Sort of the progenitor of the glorious Teitelbaum dynasty was a rabbi named Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum, who possessed that combative impulse in order to ward off evil forces to assure that spiritual purity that nobody spoke about. So separatism, combativeness. And the third is this impulse towards accommodation, which would seem to be the clinical antithesis of the very impulse of of combat in order to achieve spiritual purity. But it turns out that Satmar Hasidim, really drawing on a longstanding traditional Jewish tradition known as Shtadlanut, that is to say intercession, having a designated intercessor who works on behalf of the community with the Gentile authorities. Drawing on that tradition, the Satmar community always engaged secular, which is to say, in their view, Gentile political authorities, accommodated themselves to them in some sense in order to guarantee that they could continue to live their separatist existence. That's the fantastic paradox that stands at the heart of our story. And it extends back to Europe, 
to the origins of the community in Europe, but receives a new impetus when the community makes its way to the United States, in part because the American system is much more receptive and in part because I believe there's a greater sense of urgency and even entitlement in the wake of the Holocaust, a sense that we need to work hard for what we want and we deserve it because of the great tragedy that has befallen our people. At the same time, another irony is that you argue so well that what they are and have become is very American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This country has been receptive to strong forms of religious subcommunity from the origins of the American Republic and even before so. We talk a lot uh, about this vision of the city on the hill, the vision of John Winthrop and the Massachusetts Bay Colony to create its own form of spiritual enclave, a, a political and social entity that was suffused with religious values. And if we look throughout the history of the United States, we'll see example after example, not only of religious communes that have taken rise on American soil, but of religious communities that have achieved a measure of of state recognition, perhaps the most famous of which is the case of the Mormons in the state of Utah, and even before that in a city called Nauvoo in Illinois. So this tradition, not only of strong religious communities surviving and even flourishing in America, is not unique to the Satmar Hasidim. That's certainly the case. But even the idea that you can fuse, in some sense, religious and political power, this was not invented by Kyrgyz Dole in 1977. This had its own precedence, even in the Jewish community, in a prior Hasidic group that established a municipality in Rockland County called New Square, but even more substantially in the 19th century with the case of the Mormons in the state of Utah. But, but that kind of political empowerment could never have occurred and did never occur in Europe. It was only in America that that could occur. So the Sommers very much see themselves as recreating the shtetl of yore. And, and that's commonly how that perception is shared by outsiders. But this is unlike any other shtetl in Europe. In particular, no shtetl community in Europe was as homogeneous as this one is. The shtetls of Europe were towns in which, first of all, Jews lived among Gentiles. The population of the town was mixed, Jewish and Gentile. Furthermore, the Jewish community within a given shtetl was not typically, they were not typically all adherents of one single form of Judaism. So the degree of homogeneity, the fact that every single resident in this village is a, is not just a Jew and is not just a Hasidic Jew, but is a follower of the Satmar branch of Hasidic Judaism. The degree of its insularity, the degree of its homogeneity, and then the fact that it was able to translate its private, its existence as a private association into a public forum to create, establish their own municipal institutions These are things that could only have happened in the United States. And decidedly, liberal institutions enabled it. Classic economic liberalism, the acquisition of private property. Very simple. You aggregate private property, and it turns out, according to the laws of the state of New York, if you have 500 residents and are no more than five square miles, you can establish a village within an existing town pretty easily. And in fact, that's what happened. So overnight, you had the transformation of this community of private property owners into a Hasidic public square. And America's own 
liberal attitude towards freedom of religion, sort of moving away from economic liberalism, also enabled them to establish themselves and achieve their degree of religious liberty as they saw fit. So there's a kind of irony built into this example, which is that a community that describes itself as illiberal in many regards, it's not liberal in in terms of valuing personal autonomy and the right to live your own way as you see fit. It's illiberal, but it used decidedly liberal mechanisms, economic and political, in order to create this this illiberal community. Mm -hmm. You could put this paradox in the form of a very simple equation. Liberalism, as David said, private property, the freedom of private association, plus democracy, (laughs) local democracy, equals the establishment of a town of one particular religion. You have described so well that they were and have been so savvy at the political game that it was Mario Cuomo and George Pataki and the locals all the way up in New York State. They just learned how to play democratic politics. Yeah, interest group politics. They, they learned the game as well as any. They, they already in, in Europe understood the need to accommodate, to navigate, to negotiate. But I would say that that skill was elevated to a high art form in the United States. And they understood quickly the nature of the game. They understood that it was important to forge bonds with political leaders and conversely to use the advantages that they had in order to apply pressure where appropriate. What pressure could they apply? They could deliver a block vote like nobody's business. And they did, and they have. And that has brought millions and millions of dollars in state and federal support to the community. You might say, that's outrageous, and that's a violation of the way things are done here. And we would say, no, that's exactly how the game is played. They do it very, very well. And they have the same, they've demonstrated the same kind of savvy in working within the American legal system. Again, counterintuitively, because there is a long-standing inhibition, and indeed prohibition, in traditional Jewish communities from seeking legal redress outside of the confines of a rabbinical court, especially when it involves a disagreement between two members of the same community. And what we have seen, and what leads us to conclude that this is a decidedly American phenomenon, is that the community has repeatedly, members of the community have repeatedly sought legal remedy in state courts, state and federal courts, in violation of that prohibition. One of the ways in which it's subject to what we call a process of unwitting assimilation. Assimilation, if you asked, Mosat Rechassidim would say, is a grave evil that they hope to forestall. They do not want their children to assimilate into American society. But we, in our analysis, see that in many ways they have absorbed norms from the surrounding society that amount to a form of assimilation against you know, their own self-declared opposition to that very principle. Nomi, give us an example. Yeah, well, I think one of the most interesting examples, and this is the backstory to the Supreme Court case, It begins as an example of unwitting assimilation that is not legal in the first instance, but then it becomes so. And that is the emergence inside the community of what we might call a disability rights movement. This is in the 1970s. Traditionally, like many traditional communities prior to that point in time, what we would no longer call birth defects, but what the community then would call birth defects, were regarded as a stigma, as a sign of divine retribution on the family that gave birth to a child with so-called birth defects. 
It was a source of shame. And in the 1970s, voices emerged within the community, in particular mothers, <laughs> the voices of mothers who said, this has to change. We need to have a change in attitudes. And what's so striking is this was occurring at precisely the same time as the emergence of disability rights movement in the wider community. So there's oftentimes a perception that this community was backwards and, and, and this would be, you know, their negative attitudes, their stigmatization of people with disabilities was regarded in that fashion. But in fact, it was almost at the same time period. And when we spoke with the people, one very interesting woman in particular by the name of Malka Silberstein, who was really, really one of the main people who was responsible for this changing consciousness She's a you know, very impressive woman who also directs a girl's private school, and she gave birth to a child with disabilities. She says she was unaware of the disability rights movement, which was at the very same time that she was advocating for support for children and their families and for what we would call special education. Well, the American society have the disability rights movement at the very same time. This is one of their first victories in the mid-70s, got Congress to pass the first law guaranteeing special education. So what is that, just an amazing coincidence? There's sort of a process of osmosis there. This becomes then an example of further assimilation of legal norms because it was the concern, the expanded awareness about the needs of people with special needs that led families inside the village of Curious Yole to demand from the regional public school district the creation of programs for their children with special needs. Now, all of the other children in the community go to private schools because religious education is, you know, secular education is shunned, and that can only be provided in the United States in private schools. But children with special needs, or more precisely, special education, publicly funded and administered by school districts. School districts have an obligation to provide special educational services to every single child in their jurisdiction, regardless of whether they attend public school. They might go to a private secular school or a private religious school or be homeschooled. That created this dilemma because on the one hand, the Satmar parents wanted their children. They understood that they needed to go to a public educational program. But their preference would have been for that program to be located not only within <laughs> their enclave, but within the private religious school. And for a brief period of time, the regional school district did run a program for children with special needs inside the religious school. In 1985, the Supreme Court said that's impermissible. Now, 12 years later, the Supreme Court changed its mind. But meanwhile, the, the Sotmers of Curious Joel had to figure out what to do. That is what then led them to appeal to their friends in the legislature. They had a lot of political clout, as David has alluded to. And that led to the passage of this law authorizing the creation of a public school district within the confines of the village, which would establish a public school, which would only be attended by children with special needs. But then that law was challenged. And that led to literally a decade of litigation. And that was the first of many, many, many lawsuits, which led in turn, David has described the process of political learning, learning the rules of the game of American interest group politics. This initiated a process of legal learning. So as a result of which, the Sommers have, have gained tremendous legal savvy as well as political savvy. 
Nomi Stolzenberg, who holds the Nathan and Lily Chappelle Chair in Law at the University of Southern California Law School. And David Myers, who holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles, speaking about their important study, American Shtetl, the Making of Kiryas Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, and it was issued in February by Princeton University Press. Dr. Myers is a native of Scranton, and he was able to spend his senior year of high school studying at the University of Scranton before going off to Yale. Professor Stolzenberg and Dr. Myers returned to Scranton in March to present a program titled A Remarkable Tale of Law, Politics, and Religion as part of the World Affairs Luncheon Seminars hosted by the Schemmel Forum at the University of Scranton. For more information about their study, press.princeton.edu, press.princeton.edu. Dr. Myers has a website, and that is David N. Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com, David N. Myers dot com. And to learn more about Professor Stolzenberg, gould.usc.edu, G-O-U-L-D dot U-S-C dot E-D-U. This is the first part of a two-part conversation. We hope you'll join us tomorrow for a visit inside Kiryas Joel on Art Scene on WVIA.